The Spectator magazine combines incisive political commentary with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Stock up on your summer reading with a 12-week subscription, in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a copy of Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver's new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Lionel. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a leading expert in the field of infectious diseases. She has worked on research in the fight against malaria, HIV, influenza and bacterial meningitis. She has also found time to write novels. As Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at the University of Oxford, she recently made headlines for her research on coronavirus. A study she led into the infection rate of the virus across the country suggested in March that coronavirus could have infected as much as half of the UK's population. At the time, it appeared to be at odds with research from Imperial College. She has since suggested that coronavirus could be gradually on the way out. My guest today is Professor Sinatra Gupta. Thank you very much for joining me today. Now, clearly, coronavirus is dominating everything at the moment in terms of the news, and we are going to get on to that. But just to begin, what we like to do on this podcast is to talk about your early life and what you were doing before your, your current field of expertise. So you were born in Calcutta, but you spent your childhood in various parts of the world. Would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Oh, yes, it was a delightful childhood. I had the benefit of a very loving mother and also a very loving father. I was an only child and he spent a lot of time with me. So, uh, as did my mother, but uh, my father treated me almost as a companion and I benefited hugely from his attention and his ability to include me in all kinds of discussions and also give me the respect that perhaps one doesn't always get at that age. Your father was a historian who specialised in Africa. He previously said he was a very principled man to the point that he would quite quickly resign, perhaps, if he thought it was the right thing to do. What was that like growing up? How did it manifest itself? Well, it did manifest itself in us moving from one country to another quite suddenly sometimes, or our plans changing. So materially, it didn't manifest in ways that were entirely congenial, but my mother had a trick of turning all those situations into something that eventually would actually lead us to a better place. But overall, I would say it was not just my father, but the culture that I grew up in where being true to yourself was valued very highly. The idea of living with oneself without doing what you felt was absolutely necessary if you could make an impact at a point in time, was just not something I thought was possible. Your father did lots of things and had lots of interests, but in terms of your education then, was politics discussed much at the dinner table? Did you spend your evenings debating things? What was most discussed at the dinner table were the arts, actually. So my father was, you know, his day job was, he taught African history at the university, but he was extremely active in the arts. He was a theatre critic, a film critic, very much involved in the film society movement, and also actually in his spare time would 
write poems and novels and just felt that the life of the mind was a wonderful place to be. And so uh, a lot of the discussion was really more around the arts, less so around the sciences. Of course, there's a very strong streak of political discussion. In some ways, I think my parents both felt that the arts and politics were very closely intertwined, that you couldn't really have one without the other. And did you have any particularly early career ambitions? We've had lots of different ones on this podcast. I think my favourite was a cabinet minister who said they wanted to be a mechanic nun when they were younger. (laughs) Well, I think the first thing I wanted to be ever, when I realised you could be something when you grew up, was to be an astronaut. I was growing up in the early 70s, the first film I remember staying awake through was 2001 A Space Odyssey and I wanted to be an astronaut. It became fairly clear, quickly clear to me that that wasn't an easy ambition. (laughs) So then actually some friends of mine from when I was 11, I'm still close to, said to me the other day that I wanted to be an inventor and a writer. So I suppose that's not too bad. I must say, of them, the two very close friends I had, one wants to be a pilot and the other a doctor, and they have actually achieved both those goals. So there you go. A high-performing group. You studied at Princeton. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast potentially don't have that much knowledge in terms of the field of epidemiology, how the academia works and how you pursue it. So what made you decide to study at Princeton? I wonder if you could just talk us roughly through your career journey from there. So... There I was growing up in Calcutta, so we we moved around a bit when I was in primary school, but for secondary school and what I call my formative years, we were in Calcutta and I was very heavily exposed to the arts through my father, but also became very interested in the sciences. Studied the sciences for my A-levels and as such had no intention of leaving Calcutta. Wasn't sure what I would end up doing. At that stage, I wanted to be a film director. So, you know, one does revise one's ambitions. But then my father went on a sabbatical to the University of Liberia. And I went with my parents and did my first year of university there. And then transferred to Princeton. So that's what took me to Princeton. It was pure chance. Uh, I was very fortunate, of course, that that happened. And... At Princeton, I originally wanted to study physics. So I was fascinated by physics because for me, it was a wonderful example of where you could use mathematics to make sense of the world. But then I realised you could also use mathematics to make sense of biological systems, not just physical systems. So that's what Princeton allowed me to do, was to move from physics into theoretical biology, where you use maths but to make sense of biological systems. From there, you then went on to Imperial College where you did your PhD. Yes, I did my undergraduate degree in biology, but focusing very much on how to use maths to understand ecosystems, really. And because infectious disease is actually an ecological process, it's an interaction between two species, you know, us and the bug, infectious disease was something I became very quickly drawn to. It's something to explore using mathematics. And so then I came to Imperial to do um, a PhD in infectious diseases in particular. 
And then from there, you went, was it straight to Oxford after that to do more research on the topic? And also just, I wondered, with infectious diseases, what drew you to specialising in that? Is it this idea of almost solving a jigsaw? Well, as opposed to heart disease or non-infectious diseases, infectious diseases are nested within what we call a dynamical system, an ecological system, where, as I said, you've got different species at play. So it was natural that I should go from, as an ecologist, towards infectious rather than non-infectious disease. And that's the trajectory that a lot of people have taken going from ecology towards infectious disease. And why else? Well, you know, at the time, HIV was a problem that was starting to emerge. And there were lots of other problems which have stayed with us, uh, malaria, TB, Infectious diseases are a big problem. One of our biggest challenges is dealing with infectious diseases we are painfully aware of right now. So those two concerns kind of came together in a desire to move in that direction. Of course, most of it is just chance. You know, you meet the right person, you end up somewhere, you just get drawn into something but it worked. And you moved to Oxford, where you still are now. But I was wondering, how does it begin, you know, getting a place at a university like that to do this study, and then moving through the ranks? Is there a glimpse of what that environment is like? So I think the environment has changed a lot in the last 30 years. When I started to work in infectious diseases, it was using mathematical models to study infectious diseases. It was not a huge industry. It was you know, an academic activity which many of us came into because it was interesting and with a sort of, you know, very modest hope of perhaps being able to contribute something to the control of these diseases. It was a small field and within that field, if you manage to do something productive and advance your research in a way that was recognised as having potential, then it Well, at least I found it not that difficult to gain what I got, which was an early career fellowship and then later a senior fellowship, both from the Wellcome Trust, who were absolutely crucial in my career development. I would not be anywhere without the Wellcome Trust. They funded me until the point where I got a permanent job. One of the things on this podcast, we often speak to politicians, but also other people in different industries, women who've worked in the city. And one of the things is, has it changed in the terms of gender, the number of women now in those fields? So I just wondered, as a scientist, you know, in the 90s in this field, were women in the minority? Or would you say it was fairly equal in terms of females and males? It's not one of those things I ever thought about. I didn't sort of walk into a room and think, oh, are we equally represented and whatnot? And that's partly because it wasn't an issue. I never in my career did I feel that I was discriminated against because I was a woman or because I wasn't white. So I think I'm going to use this to make a point which I often make, which is that I don't think the reason right now that women are doing badly in science is because we're surrounded by men who really think we're inferior or even have an unconscious bias, which of course we do have, including ourselves apparently, Uh, We have all sorts of unconscious biases, and and those are problematic and should be dealt with. But I think the real problem is that what I've watched in the last 30 years is 
my field become more and more competitive and individualistic. And I think that's what's really militated against the success of women and carers, people who have other responsibilities and indeed other interests. I think it's become that the whole stage has changed so that it favours people who are able to commit in a more time than it is reasonable for someone who has a family. Instead of being just generally meritocratic and communitarian, it's become really individualistic and everyone's racing to be the first person to produce a paper, the definitive paper on something. And that's just not the right environment in which women, I mean, broadly speaking, carers in general can flourish. You mentioned gender's never been an issue, but I did just want to ask you about one incident which often gets brought up at the moment in these various writings, which we'll get onto, which is apparently the competitiveness between Imperial College and the University of Oxford, which is in 1999, you had a senior professor at Oxford at the time, Roy Anderson, falsely accuse you of having a relationship with a professor to land a job. Now, he ended up having to apologise, paying a thousand pounds to a charity of your choice. But I just wondered... What was that experience like? It was horrific. He was not just a professor, he was my PhD supervisor at Imperial. So it was really very horrific. But, you know, it was a long time ago and it has absolutely no bearing on my relationship with uh, my colleagues at Imperial who have always been, well, Neil Ferguson has always been extremely gracious and supportive on this point and never been anything other than completely sympathetic towards me and understanding of what I suffered at that time. I was going to say, because the strange thing is, the reason I brought it up is because we keep hearing about this so-called competitiveness between the two schools, and often that story is brought up to suggest there's more to it. But as I sensed from your previous answer, is it quite frustrating that such an old incident is being framed in the terms of coronavirus research? Yeah, I think it's quite pathetic, actually. It really has no bearing at all on the current situation. Now, it has moved us on to the topic of coronavirus and different studies. Now, the reason that Imperial College and Oxford University keep being brought up as two things to look at in this is, A, obviously both are very respected institutions, but also there have been two quite different viewpoints coming from studies at Imperial College and studies you yourself have led in terms of coronavirus and its impact. For example, the Imperial College tends to take, all the studies seem to suggest that coronavirus could have a more damaging impact in the long term in terms of the number of potential deaths. Is in a worst case scenario, a while ago it predicted up to half a million deaths. Whereas in Oxford, you ran a study which suggested perhaps 50% even of the population could have already been infected. Again, because I think a lot of people covering the coronavirus story are not perhaps journalists who focus on science, it's often written up as, you know, at loggerheads, different opinions. You said you were surprised there's been such unqualified acceptance of the imperial model. Can you help us understand just why there is such a range of opinions on a scientific issue is actually quite common, if that makes sense? Well, I mean, I don't think that actually even the characterization of it as differing opinions was quite correct. Essentially, the imperial model chose a particular value of the risk of death upon infection using quite a complicated model. They fit that model to the available data and they said, well, this we think is the best fit. 
And all we were trying to say with our very simple model, it was, I mean, I hesitate to call it our model. It's just a very basic framework that applies to coronavirus, that you can actually fit a range of values of this risk of death from infection to the available data. And all we were trying to point out was that in late March, we didn't really have enough information to tell whether it was a disease that had only just come in and was killing lots of people or had actually started to take off in the UK uh, at least a month before what was being assumed by the imperial model and had already spread through the population and wasn't going to kill too many people. There was no way of telling at that point in time which was more likely. And so there's the worst case scenario. We didn't actually say, oh, well, we think there's this other scenario which is more plausible. We just said there are a range of scenarios that are possible and we can't tell until we've got more data. And I think the imperial crowd, I mean, in my conversations with Neil Ferguson, he completely appreciates that and we both agreed we needed to wait to see what the data said. What's your opinion now as we have got more information through this pandemic? So my opinion now is that although we don't have enough data, I think we still have to wait. We have to be patient, which is rather unfortunate because what I did once we put that paper out was to invest a lot of time and energy into getting a test up and running, which thanks to the efforts of Craig Thompson in our group, we did manage to get a test up and running, and we're using it now to look at different populations. But it's been difficult to get a good sense of what the correct figure is, of what proportion of us has already had it. But having said that, I think from the data that I've seen, some of which is published, some of which isn't, given all the caveats surrounding the tests, I would say that it's definitely nowhere near as lethal as the Imperial College model suggests. So I would say there's a good chance that we have already hit the peak and it's on its way out. And in terms of the lockdown, you've spoken in a previous interview about the negative impact of it. Also the fact that I suppose it's become quite polarised, I think, the discussion about continuing lockdown. And it's been associated with a certain opinion on the right. You said that there was actually, perhaps it's uncomfortable, it's become like that. Um, I was wondering... Firstly, what is your opinion on the lockdown and its effect on coronavirus? And then the second thing I wondered is whether you think we are able to have nuanced conversations about coronavirus at the moment or if it's becoming difficult. That's a very good way to put it. It seems very difficult to have a nuanced conversation about coronavirus. And I do feel that it's very difficult even within the academic community to have this kind of nuanced conversation Because, of course, at least my motivation for entering this debate was not just to say, hey, look, you know, there are other solutions that fit the data that we have on deaths. So, Neil, hey, maybe something else is going on. That wasn't my only motivation. My motivation was to say, look, before we take such a drastic decision or now that we've taken this decision which you could argue buys us some time to figure out what's going on. Let's please try and figure out what's really going on out there because lockdown is really serious, affects so many livelihoods and the mental and physical health of people in this country and 
You know, I'm from India. It's very difficult for me to think of any decision outside of how it will affect the developing world as well as ourselves uh, sitting here in the comfort of the welfare state in, in this country. It seemed to me that it was very difficult to not enter into this debate given the enormous costs of lockdown. When it comes to, say, to the scientific advice guiding the government, you're not a part of it. I wonder, do you get the sense that there's enough diversity of opinion in terms of that panel? No, I, I, I don't think there is enough of a diversity of opinion because they all seem to look for a consensus. So rightfully, when people try and pin the blame on the imperial model, the reaction that one gets is, well, it wasn't just the imperial model, it's scientists are agreed that this is what's going on. I don't understand it. I don't understand how scientists can be agreed in the absence of data, sufficient data, that the imperial model was the most likely eventuality. So, no, I don't think there's enough of a diversity of opinion. Also, amongst the other groups that are working in this field, it seems that everyone has accepted that it has a high mortality rate upon infection. And so I actually also know that people find it difficult to voice a different opinion in this context. So, no, I don't think there's enough diversity of opinion. Did you feel much pressure when you came out with your initial findings, just because a professor at Stanford, I think, found a similar suggestion in some ways and has spoken about how actually they had a fair bit of pressure, even from the scientific community, for having a diverging opinion? Yes, I did get a lot of criticism on Twitter, which I found very painful. And I mean, I was very hurt by it, really. It wasn't just an implication. While I was accused of being irresponsible, the accusation was that if one presented this alternative scenario to the public, that they would not take the lockdown seriously enough. And I found that problematic in lots of ways. First of all, that, you know, this is science and shouldn't be moderated in this way, partly because it's an insult to the public to say that we have to withhold from the public what the range of scenarios could be just because we want them to act in a particular way. I have a higher opinion of the general public than that. That's one thing. The other thing is that I think the whole reason I entered into this is because I felt responsible for those people whose livelihoods uh, and lives were under serious threat from the possibility of economic lockdown both in the developed world and in the developing world. So it caused me a lot and continues to cause me a lot of distress that my having this apparently heterodox opinion is seen as irresponsible. And then, of course, very unfortunately, it is an opinion that also is held by people who, from a libertarian viewpoint, think it's an infringement of their entitlement to not be locked. And I absolutely have no sympathies with that. I think the reason to not enter lockdown is to make the sacrifice of potentially getting infected in order to save the people who are economically vulnerable. 
Now, I just want to ask a few final questions. I know you have lots to be doing and need to be getting on. But firstly, I just wondered, in recent years, we've obviously had SARS, MERS, now coronavirus. Do you think um, we are getting more infectious diseases than in the past? Or is it the case that we are perhaps getting better at spotting them? I think there are lots of aspects to this. First of all, yes, we are getting better at spotting them. I mean, in the case of this particular virus, of course, it has a very particular way of presenting clinically in those who are vulnerable. And that's caused it to be noticed just at that level. And then, of course, we were able to sequence it and determine that it was a different virus. And so because we have these wonderful tools of being able to sequence the genomes of bugs and and to see what people are actually dying of, things become more visible to us. That is certainly true. The other part of it is, of course, that we do have a lot of international travel. So bugs that normally wouldn't have reached the UK are reaching the UK. But my argument has always been that that's actually a good thing overall. Right now, it's not. It's been an unfortunate event. But I think this event could have been a lot worse if we hadn't already been exposed to a range of other coronaviruses, which give us some form of protection against severe disease and death. I've made that argument in the context of flu before, but I think it's very likely to apply also to coronaviruses, and particularly this one. Now, quick final questions. Just, I just wondered, you mentioned Neil Ferguson, and I normally spend my days writing about politics, so this week's been all about Dominic Cummings. But we now have a trend where I think if you advise the government, we also saw this in Scotland, and you reach social distancing yourself, you step down from that position. Perhaps more in the case of Neil Ferguson, what qualifies you for a job like that isn't your own personal behaviour, it's your expertise and your research over years. So I just want to, do you think it's right that people step down if they breach social distancing? Or... That's the decent thing to do, of course, and, and I'm, I'm glad he did that. But there is, uh, beyond that, a, a very interesting point, which I've expanded upon in a different context, which is, what is a profession? What is it to be a scientist or to be something... What does it grant you? And I've often argued that actually a profession is really a space in which to fail. It's a space in which you actually say, I want to try and do something, and then you maybe get there, maybe not. But what a profession definitely is not is a way to protect yourself against your other responsibilities. So it's absolutely not okay to say, well, I'm just a scientist or I'm just an academic. I think we all have responsibilities and to say, well, my job is, is just to inform the government about the science and uh, you know, anything else I do is not part of that. That's not OK. And of course, he didn't do that. So Now, we've spoken mainly about your scientific achievements on this podcast, mm. but you're also an accomplished writer. Do you feel that people are still surprised that the two can go together? And I partly ask because my parents are scientists and me and my sister have no scientific ability, but in a way have defended ourselves by saying we are the arts, but you somehow managed to do both. So that's unnerving me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're that different. In a way. I just think it's more about what you want to do and what you like to do and what makes you feel happy. Uh, Sorry, that may sound a little bit um, frivolous, but I honestly do do the both because I I really 
enjoy them, you know, at a high level. I found it very enriching to think about scientific topics. And obviously, sometimes it does lead to situations like this, which are, are, you know, not so comfortable, where you have to say something that you feel a responsibility. Everything comes with a responsibility. That's the darker side of it. In terms of practising science and practising writing literature, they're just hugely pleasurable activities for me. And I'm very fortunate that they also, at least the science, pays the rent as well. And then finally, I should have given you advance warning of this, but the question we ask everyone on this podcast is, what's the worst advice you've ever been given? Okay, the worst advice I've ever been given is everyone has to play the game. I think that's a terrible piece of advice. I don't think anyone should play the game. You should be yourself. That's the most communitarian thing you can do. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political commentary with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Stock up on your summer reading with a 12-week subscription, in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a copy of Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver's new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Lionel.